0: Matthew chapter 7 and we'll start at verse 1. I was asking the Lord last night what to speak about and he directed me to this portion of scripture that we've all read many times. And I hope to just shed some fresh light on a portion of scripture that I feel like we're all very familiar with. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged for with that For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam... "...out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened." unto you. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your anointing on my lips, God. Thank you for opening every heart and every mind to receive what you have in store, Lord. We give you all the thanks and praise and everybody said, Amen. You may be seated, please, please. So I've always found this portion of scripture very interesting. It's just a it strikes me as a unique transition from verse 5 to verse 6, we go from talking about beams and uh, flecks of dust in one another's eye. And then we go straight into talking about dogs and pigs. And then we jump straight into verse 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And I want to I wanna break this down just a little bit for us. I'm going to slow everything down more so than I usually do this morning. I hope that's alright, but I want to dive into these scriptures But first, the year is 1900, innovation and unrest are growing at a virtually unanimous rate. The world is changing and the nations are straining under the growing pains. Political, industrial and scientific revolutions are are gaining unprecedented momentum and the powers that be struggle to implement taxes and to recall as much gold as possible in order to stockpile for eventualities. This is, this is the overwhelming sense globally in the year 1900. Things are changing very, very fast. And Theodore Roosevelt pens a letter to a friend stating, I have always been fond of the West African proverb, speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. This would become the basis for his foreign policy during his presidency, and although he never possessed an incredibly large army, as all presidents of the United States after him would, he was able to usher in an era of American superiority not only in finance, but in industry and in military dominance. Using the strength of the American Navy and the principles of respect, backed by strength, fairness, the determination never to lie and to act only when able to strike with maximum ferocity and the willingness to allow the adversary to save face in defeat were some of the key tenets of his policy that would become known in real RealPolitik as the big stick policy. I don't want to preach this morning on uh, this very simple subject. Pound the door with a stick. Pound the door with a stick. So I went out. This is a, uh, an exclusive limited edition door knocker here. And I will explain all this in time, but I also have this, this uh, very nice vintage door here. And today you're in for a real treat because you're not only going to get to hear me preach... Well, you're going to get to watch me act like a madman as I beat the mess out of this door. And anybody else who gets out of line... No, I'm just kidding. I'm— te- <laughs> I'm totally kidding. But we are going to have a little bit of fun. But jumping immediately into verse 6, the imagery here is very intentional. I want to reread this one more time. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. See, what verse 6 is talking about is very specific. It first talks about that which is holy. And this is symbolic of the sacrifice, or a metaphor for the law of the Old Testament. There is perhaps... Nothing more sacrilegious in the mind of a Jew than to take the sacrificial meat that was to be placed on the altar for sacrifice that would go up before the Lord and take that off the altar and give it to a dog. A dog was considered an unclean beast. And there was perhaps nothing more sacrilegious than to take what was holy, what was deemed as holy, and give it to a dog. And this would be imagery... That what a Jew who Jesus is speaking to here in the book of Matthew would would readily understand. You would readily understand how filthy and how just unthinkable this act would be. And secondly, we see pearls mentioned in verse 6. Now pearls, because of the way they they had to be harvested and the skill set required, they became the most precious jewel in antiquity. Because it wasn't just simply mining, uh, the farming, uh, uh, the industrial farming of, of oysters for the purpose of, of or for gaining their pearls had not become commonplace. So it actually took a diver, someone who specialized and obviously they don't have all the gear, someone who specialized in swimming to the bottom of specific areas of water and harvesting the oysters so that they could bring those to the surface and claim the pearls, out of them. And as a result, this became the most precious jewel that someone could obtain. So when it talks about pearls, that's that's almost synonymous with today's diamond. So it's that you wouldn't throw diamonds to pigs. How many of you have seen a pearl before? We've all seen a pearl. Well, the reason they specifically use a, a, a pearl is not only for its value, but In in the area that Jesus is speaking, it was very common to feed a couple things to pigs. It was very common to feed nuts and rotting fruit that fell to the ground to the pigs. That was the pigs' food. That's what their diet consisted of. So to a pig, a small pearl might have just looked like another nut. But once it got it into its mouth and began to chew and felt the hardness, it would just spit it out and trample all over it unknowingly, completely oblivious to the value of the pearl. But there is more meaning to these creatures. They're very specifically selected to show us an image of the sin that follows untoward judgment to your brothers. Because we're making a very strange transition here. It's talking about the, the speck, seeing the speck in your brother's eye when in fact you have a beam. We just heard Pastor talking about this a couple Sundays ago. When in fact you have a beam in your own eye. And then it transitions immediately into this. What Jesus is trying to tell us is that when you fall prey to judgment, this is what is to come. Revelation chapter 22 verse 15, it refers to dogs. This is the final chapter in the final book of the Bible. Just a few verses from the final wording and it says, for without our dogs, for outside are the dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. They represent impurity. The dogs are designed to represent impurity. And the sacrifice, that which is holy, is designed to represent the law. Or for us, truth, the gospel, the good news. If the sacrifice that was to be laid on the altar was holy, how much more holy is the gospel, the good news that has been relayed to you and to I? Can I get a witness? How much more holy is the gospel? And so it's saying you you should never take the good news. You should never take truth and throw it to the dogs. You should never take truth and throw it to the pigs. The dogs, they represent impurity. And Psalm 80 in verse 13 refers to pigs. The boar from the forest ravages it. And all that move in the fields feed on it. This represents the, just the ferocious, insatiable, destructive force that follows impurity. See, when you begin to cast judgment against others, that becomes the lens that you look through. Even upon yourself. It's so dangerous to begin to judge others because that's the lens that you begin to see everything with. And if you allow judgment to become your guide, you will be blinded, just like the man he's talking about in Scripture. He said you can't even see the little speck in your brother's eye that you're, you're pointing out with one eye because you got a beam sticking out of it. Your vision is blurred to start with. I don't even know how you saw that little speck, but you shouldn't even be worried about that little speck because in your own eye, you have this beam. And when you allow your vision to be distorted by judgment, you will fall prey to these creatures of sin. You cannot escape the judgment that you have levied against yourself Because when you levy judgment against others, inevitably you are levying that same judgment against yourself. That's what the scripture says. If you judge others to that same measure, it's going to be judged against you. And you will fall prey to these creatures of sin. Jesus tells us, this will cause you to cast what is holy to the dogs. And what is precious to the swine I said it before and I'll say it again but the Lord he'll never he will never require a sacrifice of innocence as a prerequisite for his goals he will never require a sacrifice of innocence of purity of truth if you find yourself in a place where you are having to compromise something that is pure something that is true in order to fulfill what you believe is the will of God, then you've compromised and you've already fallen. You've already fallen. We've got to be so careful. And if you come to that place and you realize I'm about to compromise something that is pure, you need to immediately repent. And I'm I'm almost 99% sure that in every instance you're going to be repenting because the original root of that problem was judgment against others. And it has caused a blurred or distorted view of the world around you. Judgment is part of human nature. It's in the church. It's outside of the church. It's everywhere. That's just humans are naturally prone to we pastor even asked the question when he was talking about a similar subject he's how many of you have looked and you immediately judged someone and you had preconceived notions of them just based off how they looked how many of you have have done that we've all done that that's just natural human nature i told i i told pastor and my family it's hilarious I, i think i've told you before but when I was in banking, I had a lot of very wealthy clientele, and almost always the people that you thought were really wealthy, they were just kind of feigning it. <laughs> they were just dressing to look wealthy. The guys that are really the big bucks, they come in, they, they roll in looking like absolute bums. They show up in like some crinkly old, uh, like Hawaiian print shirt with hula girls on it and the shorts that he's been wearing for like the last 10 days and chanclas uh, from, my, from my white people. Those are sandals. But, and I would almost always, I, even after I've been doing it for a while, almost always think, oh, great. Another one, uh, this guy's got, he, uh, I, I, I was in it, I mean, you're in that field for the money. So you're, you're ot- automatically eyeballing people, you're like, oh, this is a big dollar guy, this is a big dollar guy. And invariably, the guys I thought weren't big dollar guys were the big dollar guys, The guy I described is a real person, and he's worth about $600 million, and you would never guess it. But judgment is part of human nature, and it plagues the world, and it plagues the church. The only difference is when it creeps into the church, it destroys our effectiveness and our ability to perform God's will, and it leads us into apostasy. See, but then the Lord, He gives us three commands. He gives us three commands. And he's just explained, look, you cannot allow judgment to be your guide. You cannot allow judgment to cover you and create a lens over your heart and over your mind. And you can't throw truth. You can't throw truth to the the swine and to the dogs. If you allow judgment to be your guide, that's who you'll throw it to. He said, but this is what you need to do ask and it shall be given you seek and you shall find knock and it shall be opened i look i have a we have a greek theologian with us today so i'll try not to butcher it too bad and pretend like i actually know what i'm talking about <laughs> but ask comes from the greek aitite meaning to petition to petition those of you that are familiar with the vernacular that you, we use regarding prayer, you know that prayer is a petition. You're petitioning the Lord. You're petitioning God Almighty. Lord, these are my needs. This is what I want you to do in my life. But I also thank you, Jesus. I entreat you. I praise you. I lift up your name, God. You're petitioning the Lord. Seek. Comes from the Greek zetite, Meaning... To desire and to worship. And I believe when you desire the Lord and when you worship Him, it, it, it becomes manifest in your desire to draw closer to Him. Not just in prayer, but seeking Him in His Word. And seeking Him through fasting. And seeking Him through meditation. And when you begin to ask and when you begin to seek, you begin to Fall in love with Jesus. When you ask, when you seek, uh, what really caught me was the, the third command. That's why I got really intrigued. You see, the other two commands, they are very figurative. They have, they have meanings. Ask, meaning to petition. Seek, meaning to, to desire, to worship. They're figurative words. But the third command is very literal. And in the Greek, it only has a literal translation. And it means simply this. It is the Greek crate. And it means simply this. It means to beat a door with a stick. Crate. Literally to beat a door with a stick. We have these two beautiful Greek... Figurative words and then we have a final command from the Lord beat a door with a stick Beat a door with a stick I was really shocked when I read that because I I was expecting something extremely profound Something so incredibly deep in the Greek And what do I discover beat a door with a stick see the lord he's giving us very specific instructions he doesn't want us to fall prey to judgment and be blinded by disagreement you know disagreement is so it's so destructive judgment is so destructive and the way it creeps into the church is we start arguing about i'm not talking about fundamental doctrine i'm talking about petty doctrine you know here's the thing if two men, I, two men will never agree on anything. I love both my brothers, but we don't agree on everything. I love my father, but we don't agree on everything. If you find two men that agree on everything, friend, you need to get as far away from those two men as you possibly can. Yeah, walk away. Preferably at a brisk, very brisk pace. But disagreement will creep in and it will allow you to start casting judgment against others or maybe you have a maybe you have a little falling out and you get offended and you begin to cast judgment or maybe the fact that you were casting judgment is why you were looking to get offended i know that was a little harder to understand but you begin to judge and then suddenly you have a lens that creeps over your life that creeps over your mind and before you know it, you're struggling, your family's struggling. Maybe you're still coming to church, but you have issues in your home. You have issues in your marriage. You have issues in your finance. And they all kind of look like the two animals we were talking about. They start to, you start to drift farther and farther away from truth because you're struggling with a, a blurred lens in your life. Is everybody with me? You have a? Distorted vision of what reality, what truth is. What we need to do is we need to allow love to reign supreme. I heard it said recently, actually just Brother Victor Jackson, he was talking about it. and He made a phenomenal point, and it's one I completely agree with. And I, I want to share it with you. He said, you don't overcome hate with love. You don't overcome hate with love. That's a, that is a phenomenal point that we all need to get a firm grasp on right now you don't overcome hate with love you overcome it with persistence you overcome it by continuing on you overcome it with endurance you overcome it by simply doing what is right you see because no matter how much you love the world No matter how much love you pour into the world, the world will still hate. You must love. You must love. But that's not how you overcome the hate. You overcome the hate with endurance. And that's true because love was never intended to overcome the world. It was intended to empower us to overcome the world. I'll say it again. Love was never intended to overcome the world. It was intended to empower us to overcome the world. Because when you allow the love of Christ to overpower you, you begin to see not through a lens of judgment, but through a lens of truth. And you realize all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is like unto Christ. And you realize, look, I'm, I, all I want to do is... Allow the love of Christ to flow out of me and endure. And when you cast off the lens of judgment, you will see through the lens of truth. And when you begin to ask, pray. And when you begin to seek or to study and to fall in love with Jesus and with His Word, you will be driven to obey the third command. And I, want, I think this is so important because the scripture tells us that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And this is the greatest hurdle of the church. This is the greatest hurdle of the church because we don't understand what Jesus is saying here in chapter seven. We don't understand. You know, every time I've ever heard asking and seeking and knock it's, it's about uh, you know, prosperity and blessings for your family and, and, and God's influence on you. And the, all those things will come. But that's not what these scriptures are about. These scriptures, they're not about financial blessings. They're not about the miraculous. They're about truth and who we share it with. They're about truth And who we share it with. Because when you. Begin to pray. When you begin to fall in love with his word. And with his spirit. And with his truth. You will be. Placed in a position. Where you cannot eat. Think. Sleep. Walk. Talk. Do anything without an overwhelming burden. On your life. For God's will. And his will is that. None would perish, but that all would have everlasting life. See, in ancient times, in ancient times, see, the, the Greeks and the Jews and all those that Jesus is speaking to here in the book of Matthew, they would have understood uh, this analogy a lot better than we would. We're blessed today with uh, smartphones and nice alarm clocks. You can even go buy an alarm clock with giant pads that you can stick under your mattress if you're a really heavy sleeper and it will shake your bed until you wake up. But in the cities in antiquity where there was no livestock like an annoying chicken to, or rooster to wake you up. How many of you have ever lived someplace with an annoying rooster? Yeah. when you know, Man, we had an annoying rooster and oh man. Every morning I, all I wanted to do was go... Go to the closet, open the gun vault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> right, you know what? I just just charge straight through the wall and, and plow through both fences and, and find him in the in the yard somewhere and strangle the life right out of him. But in the cities in antiquity there was no livestock to awaken you, and perhaps you slept through the calls to prayer in the morning, in the wee hours of the morning, so there would come a professional door knocker. This was was the case all the way until the turn of the century, until the Industrial Revolution. This continued on until the advent of the alarm clock. But a man would come around or a woman would come around with a giant club or a giant stick, and if you paid them good money, they'd wake you up. And that person would come around about five thirty, six o'clock in the morning. Well, hopefully they had a better club than that. <laughs> yeah, limited edition. I'm not, not getting my money back, that's for sure. <laughs> and they'd come around and they'd knock on that door and they'd make sure you were up. But only if you paid them good money. But everyone listening to this analogy that Jesus gave would understand what it meant, what that Greek word meant, simply to bang on a door with a stick. They would know because every morning that was who woke them up. See, this only occurred in the city because in the countryside we have some, we have some farmers amongst us. And uh, Bishop, I can assure you, no no rooster has ever woken Bishop up. <laughs> yeah, he's waking the roosters up. Four four thirty in the morning he's kicking that guy into action. You y'all think I'm joking about this, but I I have lived with the man and I know. Yeah, the roosters wanted to joke. <laughs> Oh, man, role reversal. (laughs) And so the the farmers and the shepherds, they did not require a wake-up call. They didn't require a door knocker because the livestock, they were either in the field sleeping with the livestock and they would have slept lightly throughout the course of the night or very uncomfortably. For those of you that are unfamiliar, shepherds in the time when they were in the field what the, the, the scripture, it references it several times, but what they would do is they would herd all the sheep into a cave or into a rocky alcove, and then they would sleep right in the entrance of that cave. And those of you that have been to Israel, to the Holy Land, you know the caves that they're talking about aren't very large, so you would have been sleeping something like this with a rock backrest. wasn't no therapeutic sleep, so they were sleeping very light. And the farmers, they would have the livestock. And what they would do is first thing at the beginning of the day, they would open the door and the door would stay open throughout the course of the day. And that was to serve as an invitation for anybody who would pass by. They're more than welcome to come in and enjoy the hospitality of a fine country Jewish home. But in the city, this was not the case. People would leave and go to work. And so their doors would be closed. But everybody understood the analogy Everybody understood what Jesus was saying when He used that word, knock on the door with a stick. I'm here to tell somebody this morning that the number one reason that we are not knocking on the doors of men and women's hearts all across the world is because we've fallen prey because we don't understand this one simple analogy that Jesus is giving. If you allow judgment to cloud your vision, and your perception, you will fall prey to impurity and the ferocious, insatiable nature of sin that follows that impurity. And you will never seek him. You will never ask. And you will most certainly never knock in the manner which he has desired you to, because we have fallen prey. I want to share with you some startling statistics Um, And I have pastor and bishop here. They're both very uh, well-versed in this particular area. But there are 1.4 billion people in China alone. And I believe there's only one missionary to China, and that's the secondary allocation. I believe they're actually missionaries to Hong Kong. And that is one missionary, and it's their second job to reach 1.4 billion people. You say, I can't go to China. Well, that's fair. How about right here in the United States? I was actually, Winston and I, we were just talking uh, to the district superintendent of Idaho, and he was kind of sharing his vision with us for growing the district, planting 20 churches in one year. But in North America, in the western portion of the United States, between Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, South and North Dakota, and Utah, there are 8.1 million people. And there are less than 70 churches. To give you an idea of how insane that is, there are 170 churches just in the state of Indiana that preach truth. Right here in Richmond, we have 35,455 people. And I, I look out and I see maybe 150 of us here. What has prevented us from knocking on the doors of hearts? We need to begin to knock on the hearts, on the doors of men's souls. But Jesus tells us very clearly if you're not knocking, it's either because you've fallen prey to a distorted vision. And then fall and pray to impurity. You fall and pray to other things, other worldly things, other influences have taken over. I saw. I've known a lot of people that they had good intentions, and they, you know, they, they brought their kids to church, but softball was more important, or work was more important. And I get it. We all have to do those things. We all have to work. In fact, in this city, we could use a few more. But the Lord still has to be the number one priority. And if we're not knocking, it's because we've either fallen prey to judgment or we never asked or we never sought and we certainly never knocked. Because when you approach the doors of a man's heart, We're just like Theodore Roosevelt. We bring a big stick. And that big stick is the good news, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. Regardless of what anybody tells you, we do have what the world needs. We do have the peace that they need. We do have the understanding that they need. We do have the revelation that they need. We do have the power that they need. We have the miracle-working anointing that they need. Come on now. We have the power that breaks every yoke, every chain, tears down every wall, fixes every problem. And when we come to the door of a man's heart and we begin to knock on it, inevitably someone will answer the door. The problem is we never get to the knocking portion. We never get to the knocking portion. We never come in the wee hours of the morning to begin to knock on the hearts of men's souls. And I'm not talking about literally coming early in the morning. I'm just saying we have to begin to move out into our workplaces, into the highways and the byways, and begin to compel them. That word there is very important. Compel. I'm going to tell you, this is pretty compelling. You know, I, my brothers, they're real scrappers. You know, I've, I always like to use my mouth instead. But somebody, somebody sticks one of these in, in your face and you kind of perk up a little bit. Start paying attention. You see a wild man coming down the sidewalk with a big old stick at you. You're walking to the other side of the road. You know what I mean? Well, at least I am. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But when we begin to knock on the hearts and minds of men's lives, the doors will open. The problem is, is that we never get to the knocking part because we never understood what these scriptures are talking about, the prosperity, the blessings, The miracles that we're asking and seeking in those proverbial doors that we think we're knocking. That's never what it was really all about. Those things come. Yes, when you live for God, he will bless you. He will bless your marriage. He will bless your finances. He will bless your children. He will bless your home. He will bless you in the workplace. You will find favor. You will succeed. But that's not what it was ever about. Those were just residual things when you begin to ask, when you begin to petition Him in prayer, when you begin to seek Him out in His Word, and you begin to fall in love with Him, you're driven to knock. And it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what blessings you have or what miracles have been done. Just so long as you are able to knock, because you're driven to knock. You have a burden to knock. You have an overwhelming desire to knock knock at the door with whatever you have available. But if you allow judgment to be a veil over your eyes or if you never ask and you never seek, we will never get to the place where we begin to knock. It's always been about the gospel. It's always been About truth, everything else is just residual. But man's desires, fleshly desires are evident because the fleshly desires have been projected onto these scriptures. We make them say what we want them to say. We want it to be about prosperity. Trust me. I know. I know. I got lots of bills just like everybody else in this room. Do I wish I'd be walking down the street and find that big old Willy Wonka lotto ticket? Yes, I do. Yes, pastor, I would pay tithes. <laughs> Come on now, don't, don't front on me like you ain't been sitting back one day after a real long, hard day and you had to kick your feet up because they were swole as the ten little piggies that went to the Whatever. And you were thinking to yourself as you were yelling at one of the kids, bring me a sweet tea. (laughs) Man, it would be nice to find the golden ticket. We all want the blessings. We all want the prosperity. I'm pretty sure there's no one in this room that wants to live under a rock and not take showers for two weeks at a time. We all want to be blessed. We all want to go to the sink and find that the water's on. We all want to have the light. We all want to go out to the garage and find the Rolls Royce out there. (laughs) Pastor will take a (laughs) Lexus. Brother Winston, he'll, he'll just settle for a giant lift kit on his truck. We all want those things. And that's not necessarily wrong. But that's not what it was ever about. Those were only ever residual. It's always, always, always been about the good news, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, that Jesus Christ, he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. And one day they hung him on a cross and he died and he was buried in the grave, but the grave couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. When he went down to Hades, they said, you don't belong here. And he took the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And he set his saints loose. And he took them up to paradise. And he came back in a glorified body. And he said, it was never about these things. It was always about the truth and what you do with it. It was always about knocking on the doors of hardened men, of their souls, and giving them the truth. Stand to your feet with me. I'm all done as the musicians come. I I feel impressed to pray this right now. I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance over all of us. Lord, forgive us for what we try to make it about. There's There's a very powerful saying. It's very simple, keeping the main thing, the main thing is the main thing. Let's pray right now. Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would sweep into this room, God. Sweep over every heart, Lord. Forgive us for what we try to make it about. Lord, you see, we're humans, and we have all these desires, and we want so many things we we have wants and and then we have needs God but Lord that's never what it was about it was always about truth Lord it was always about you it was always about your name and your blood and your sacrifice God forgive us for what we've tried to make it about Lord but it was always about truth and about the souls that needed Jesus Lord I pray that you would come into my heart God purify my heart Cleanse me, Lord, of the lust of my eyes, the lust of my flesh, and the pride of my life, Jesus. Those same things which are upon all men, Lord. Jesus, forgive us, God, of the things that we try to make it about, Lord. Forgive us of the things that we try to make it about. Thank you, Jesus. I wonder if right now you'll just lift your voices and tell the Lord thank you.